Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government for teachers, students, and citizens. Uh, Welcome back, everybody. This is our first uh, Saturday webinar of 2018. These Saturday webinars are sponsored by the Ashbrook Center uh, at Ashland University. Uh, TeachingAmericanHistory.org is our website full of documents and other resources uh, for teachers. And it's a leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. Uh, I'm Chris Burkett. Uh, If you've been here before, you know who I am. Uh, This year's webinar series, the theme is uh, Moments of Crisis. And if you are joining us for the first time, just so you know, we try to pull together some thoughtful scholars, uh, get some insights from them on the particular moment of crisis that we're looking at. And of course, we all encourage, we encourage all of you to join in that conversation by submitting questions in the chat box, and we'll try to get to those, uh, as many of those as possible. And for our, uh, our scholars joining us today, if you see a question that you're interested in tackling, don't wait for me, by all means, go right ahead and answer any questions that you see pop up. Uh, let me just mention that in the next week, <clears throat> excuse me, you'll receive an email with a link uh, to request a certificate of participation, and it will also include a link to the archived video and audio from today's webinar. I'm happy to have two very fine scholars and historians uh, with us today to discuss the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, David Krugler of the University of Wisconsin-Platteville who also teaches in our Master of Arts program in American History and Government, and my colleague here at Ashland University, John Moser, who is also, along with me, co-chair of that Master of Arts program. So again, thanks both of you for for being here this morning. Um, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time uh, because for two reasons. One, uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor is something I know very little about and I'm interested in learning. But two, I know both of you are very knowledgeable on this subject and on the on the topic of, of World War II in general. So, so let me just throw out a big question, and you guys take it any way, um, any way you like. Of course, um, what was what were the Japanese thinking? <laughs> Let's start with that because I noticed the readings that you all uh, recommended. <clears throat> some of the readings that are recommended include some diplomatic notes. Between the, between the Japanese and the United States. Um, and so there are diplomatic negotiate, negotiates, uh, negotiations taking place uh, even on the very day on which the attack, I believe, uh, on Pearl Harbor happened. So could you buy, maybe start by telling us what what is what's what are the Japanese doing here? What are they what do they think they're accomplishing? What's their mindset? What are they doing? That, that, that's the million-dollar question about Pearl Harbor. What were they thinking? In fact, um, a recent book on the subject is titled A War They Were Always Going to Lose. Uh, there, there, is, there, is, there is no way that the Japanese were going to uh, defeat the United States in a war. Um, and by and large, with the exception of some fanatics, Japanese policymakers understood that. Um, I think it can be... The question can be answered in, in, in two ways. One is by defining the definition of victory downward. And the other is by saying that even defeat looked like looked worse than dishonor. Uh, 
So there had to be fighting. You know, understand that the the, the Japanese warrior spirit, uh, Bushido, uh, too much has been made of that in time at, at times. But certainly among the among the high command, uh, the the understanding was very great that 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 Japan cannot allow itself to be humiliated, and that defeat, even death, is worse than that. Uh, the defining victory downward part means okay. Everybody understood uh, that, that that there wasn't going to be dictating peace terms at the White House. Uh, everybody understood that California was not going to be added to the Japanese Empire. But if an if if an overwhelming attack could be made against the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor, that could keep the United States from projecting force into the Pacific for perhaps maybe six months, maybe as long as a year. And that if in that time, if that gave a window of opportunity for the Japanese Navy to uh, snatch up as many island chains as possible and to grab what they called the southern resource area, uh, Dutch East Indies, Burma, Malaya, etc., and then use those island chains to construct naval bases and air bases that they could create a, a, such a powerful system of defenses that the Americans, by the time they were able to recover from the blow against Pearl Harbor, might throw up their hands and say, eh, you know what, this isn't all that important after all. Let the Japanese have their sphere of influence in, in East Asia. It doesn't really hurt us. And we can talk more about why the Japanese thought this would work uh, perhaps later. It involved a major misunderstanding of, of what we might call the American character. But it's but but if there was any hope of victory, it was it was that, that the Americans might be demoralized and say the game isn't worth the candle. So, so this was a big roll of the dice. I mean a strategic roll of the dice thinking they don't come any bigger. Yeah, that's, that's well, huge. and I, you know, I think something that we we should point out is that uh, this big roll of the dice and what turns out to be an enormous blunder uh, derives from a choice the Japanese made uh, well before the events we're looking at, and that's the, that's the choice to not go to war against the Soviet Union. Uh, and the British historian Evan Maudsley has has uh, suggested that it might have been better for Japan to attack the Soviet Union and find its resources there. I mean, the reason Japan is expanding southward is because Manchuria does not meet all its needs. As John said, you know, they need they need oil. Uh, so this is a big what if of, of World War II. Uh, what if uh, Japan had decided to attack uh, the Soviet Union? I think to relate this problem to, our, uh, to some of our documents, um, I'd like to raise a question based on something John said. Did Japan's military planners and strategic thinkers believe that their floating Maginot line uh, would work because of the American tradition of uh, what one panel, uh, one member of the audience has said, reluctant interventionism? Is there this assumption that because the Americans have proved themselves to be so reluctant to engage or to talk, but undertake no action, think the response to the Japanese invasion of Manchuria, uh, that a, a, a formidable enough defensive perimeter in the Pacific would uh, exhaust the Americans quickly and they'd give up and seek some sort of uh, rapprochement. Yeah, that was um, that understanding of Americans was, was, I think, very much informed by the unwillingness of, of Americans to act on any of the former provocations. And just kind of a belief, a belief that, by the way, was shared in Berlin uh, among people like Hermann Goering, that uh, Americans 
uh, liked ease and comfort and material things. Right? Uh, uh, Goering famously dismissed the Americans as, well, they make good razor blades. But the assumption being that's about all they can they, they can do. They're good at making stuff. Uh, they're good at enjoying material comforts, but they're not. They're so individualistic and unwilling to commit themselves to any uh, to any great effort that uh, that that in the end they're going to be they're 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 going to be unwilling to pursue the war. It's sort of old bourgeois sort of uh, characterization of Americans. So, can I just ask a few questions based on some of the things you raised? Interesting points, uh, David. You mentioned you called it reluctant interventionism. Can you uh, elaborate on the difference between that and isolationism, if there is a difference? What do you what do you mean by that term? Sure, sure. And this was a question that came from uh, participant Billy uh, Gallagher, or a term that came from him, reluctant interventionism. Mm -hmm. uh, and in my preliminary reply, I noted that um, scholars no longer like to use uh, isolationism as as an isolationism as a term. That it's better, even in in the interwar period. Uh, to speak of the anti-interventionists. Uh, so these are not individuals who say the United States can cut itself off entirely from the world. Uh, many of them are proponents of a robust trade uh, with Europe. Uh, they accept the open door, uh, but they don't want to see the United States actively intervening in conflicts they believe do not directly concern the United States. Uh, Lindbergh is a great example of this, um, and Lindbergh is listened to by a lot of people. He has a great deal of influence, and, and he says, look, I like the British. Um, you know, we wish them well, but they're finished. Uh, and any resources we send to them will just take away resources we need to protect ourselves uh, in our hemisphere. Um, now, what Roosevelt and other robust interventionists are trying to say is, look, it doesn't work that way. Uh, you can't simply write Europe off and, and then say, well, we'll defend them when they get across the Atlantic. We'll just take care of the Western Hemisphere. Um, I mean, that itself, the belief that you can just wait for the threat and still protect the Western Hemisphere, I think, shows the influence of the Monroe Doctrine. So, mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's proof of uh, isolationism not being uh, as durable and widespread. As, as one's thought. Uh, when we think about the documents uh, that are associated with this morning's panel, it's remarkable that Wendell Wilkie, who just lost the 1940 election to Roosevelt, is saying the exact same thing Roosevelt said in his Arsenal of Democracy speech, which was delivered on uh, December 29th, 1940. Um, that's the speech in which Roosevelt was calling for some um, unprecedented powers uh, of, uh, of war, uh, and Wilkie saying, look, we need to give them to the president, but we've got to sunset them because we don't want the executive branch to grow too powerful. So, you know, Wilkie himself is saying we can't be isolationist and our liberty is tied up with, with Britain's. That's Wilkie's a fascinating case. Yeah. Uh, because up in as late as 1936, he'd been a Democrat and there were a lot of Republicans who were complaining when he got the nomination. Uh, he was an appealing candidate in many ways, but their concern was he's not going to he's not going to be as tough in his criticism of FDR as he could be. And when it came to foreign policy, Wilkie, there wasn't a whole lot of daylight between Wilkie's views and Roosevelt's. But as the campaign went on, um, Wilkie was ba way behind in the polls, and he started to put out a more anti-interventionist message late in the campaign. At one point, he said. The, the transport, the troops are already ready to be loaded onto the transports. And, and what happened was, as he played that issue up, his poll numbers went up. 
So he kind of stuck with it until the end. And then once the election was over, he went back to being the old Wilkie who was who was uh, uh, completely on board with, uh, the, with 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 FDR's foreign policy. And he became the biggest critic in the Republican Party of what he called isolationism. And I totally agree with uh, with Dave that uh, 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 isolationism is a it it. it it's not used widely among historians because it doesn't really. It, nobody really knows what it means. It was a slur, right? If you if 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 you wanted if you wanted a more uh, interventionist foreign policy than your opponent, you slammed your opponent as an as an isolationist. So so an isolate. I mean, look to be an isolationist, you literally it seems to me have to want to cut off relations with any other country yeah. or anybody, certainly outside of say you know our particular sphere in the Western Hemisphere, but. And it, it yeah. strike me that there were many of those sorts, even yeah. in the Republican Party, if any. They existed, and there were perhaps more of them around in the early 30s, in the worst of the Depression, when the idea was, hey, we got to... You know, we got to pursue recovery here. You might even put FDR in that category in the early 30s. Right. But, but yeah, by, by 19, 1939, nobody was, uh, virtually no one was talking like that. Yeah, that's fascinating. My video seems to have frozen, but it's, it's, I, think, I think it froze on a, not an unflattering position, so we'll just leave it the way it is. So <laughs> that. Uh, could have been worse. But um, so, so in light of what you're talking about, this attitude of limited interventionism or, or, uh, or uh, how did we call it? Um, I'm not sure what, what the term was that somebody used earlier, but uh, reluctant, interventionism, reluctant interventionism and that attitude sort of being known coupled with the the sort of uh, almost tedious, cautious steps that Roosevelt had to take to move the United States even toward support of, uh, of, of Britain in Europe um, seemed to contribute to this idea of the Japanese thinking that, that the roll of the dice was, was worth the risk. But I think John, maybe I think it was you who mentioned the the, the other another thing that contributed to this was the was the um, sort of the United States uh, underwhelming reaction to what you called former provocations. Can you? I think that was your. Can you yeah. tell us what those former provocations were and what the reaction of the United States was to those? Uh, Dave, was it you who used that? I can't remember. One of you did. I'm sorry if it wasn't you. I, actually, I think it was, maybe it was me, but it was one of us. <laughs> I'm sure either of us could answer this, though. Dave, go ahead. So, well, you have the, um, during the Hoover administration, uh, Japan makes its first aggressive move against uh, China. This is in 1931. They stage an explosion on a, on a railroad they own. They claim they have to move troops in uh, to protect their property. There's already a lot of Japanese um, colonists, uh, settlers living there, and, and Manchuria becomes, for all intents and purposes, a colony uh, of Japan. This is the first move southward against Japan and then into the to the greater Pacific uh, area. Um, the response of the United States is a, a, a strongly worded condemnation without any force behind it. Uh, and the declaration of what's called the Stimson Doctrine, which itself really is uh, um, an expansion of the open door policy. And I think if we consider the notes between, the diplomatic notes between the United States and Japan, um, one of the irreconcilable differences that emerge, which makes diplomatic negotiation all but impossible, is the United States' insistence on Chinese sovereignty and independence as defined by Western powers, meaning the ability to access uh, trade opportunities. And this goes back to the, mm -hmm. 1899, the open door notes. 
Uh, and for Japan, uh, this really represents a double standard. Uh, and, and there's also the issue of um, Western colonialism and existing imperialism in the Pacific. Uh, why is that acceptable, but not Japan uh, doing that? Yeah, in the in the Japanese note of December seventh, you see uh, an expression of frust of the frustration that the Japanese have that in, conver in in conversations with the Americans, the Americans are just talking about high blown principles, and this is totally the U.S. response to every Japanese provocation in the nineteen in the nineteen thirties. Cordell Hall, the old Wilsonian who is Secretary of State, issues something talking about. The, you know, the sanctity of borders, the inviolability of the, of, of the, uh, the autonomy of individual countries. And the Japanese say, we want to talk about hardcore power politics. If we offer this, what will you give us in, in, in return? And, and the only thing that comes from Washington are these pious statements of principle. It's abundantly clear that the American people don't want to go to war in East in East Asia. The administration doesn't want to go to war in East Asia really either. Uh, but it's it's it is so limited in what it, the, the you the administration's options for response are so limited that all they can really do are make denunciations and increasingly impose economic sanctions. And the economic sanctions hurt Japan. Uh, without solving the problem, right? It does. I mean, ultimately, it pushes the Japanese not to steer away from their present course in of, of uh, engaging in aggression against China, but rather uh, it pushes them to a more hardcore stance uh, and 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 the willingness to expand the war to other parts of Asia. When did those economic sanctions come about, John? There were a variety of them. Um, the, the, the first really serious ones were in 1940, in response to Japan's occupation of northern Indochina. Uh, there was, a, there was a, 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 an embargo on scrap iron and steel. Now, the embargo, the order for the embargo didn't mention Japan at all, but everyone understood Japan is America's largest customer for scrap iron and steel, which it uses in its own steel industry. So that was understood to be a, 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 a shot across the bow of the, of the Japanese. Uh, and then the big one was July 1941, in response to the Japanese occupation of southern Indochina. The administration announces a freeze on all of Japan's assets in the United States. Which meant, in practice, Japan could purchase nothing for the United States. Hmm. And given the absolute dependence of Japan on U.S. oil, this was a real uh, this was a real blow. That's interesting. So, so now we're talking about the need Japan has for resources um, from overseas. Did they need those resources? Simply to maintain, let's say, for simple domestic purposes, or did did Japan have imperialistic tendencies prior to this? And when did those? Maybe this is going. Maybe, John, I know you teach courses on on Southeast Asia and Asian history, but maybe this is going back too far. But um, did did these did the imperialist tendencies of Japan manifest themselves far be, uh, before this? Uh, were they, for example, what about, say, during World War One, at the aftermath of World War One, did, did Japan already harbor sort of yeah. realistic aspirations, do you know? Yeah, uh, Teddy Roosevelt warned against it when he was president. Uh, 
Mm. So, it, it, so the the Japanese expansionism was something that was that was widely was widely understood. The Japanese took advantage of World War One, the fact that everyone's attention was riveted on Europe, to issue twenty one demands, which really represented uh, significant Japanese inroads on on Chinese sovereignty. Um, so there was a yeah there was a, a there was a long history of this. So uh, would, it, would it be fair to say that the 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 Japanese uh, tendency toward imperialism was viewed on their part as a sort of um, oh gosh what am I trying to say it was it wasn't defensive but it was necessary for them to maintain their own um, political integrity sovereignty uh, Get, independence in light of other European imperialist policies and colonization efforts in the area. Dave may well have more to say about this, but but there was a very strong attitude, not just in Japan but worldwide, that said, "Why did why did the Allies win World War One?" Well, it wasn't about what happened on the battlefield; it was ultimately the blockade that mattered. That Germany could, the Central Powers could be slowly starved to death because they didn't have the space. They didn't have the capacity to feed themselves or to provide what their economy needed, except by relying on international trade. So there's a big push by nationalists of all countries after the war to say, we have to rely on our own territory to produce what we need. Well, Japan is basically big hunks of volcanic rock in the Pacific, in the Sea of Japan. Right. There are very little in the way of, of, of natural resources. So the belief among Japanese nationalists is the only way the country can avoid humiliating dependence on other powers is to conquer territory abroad and use that as a source of for our for, for what we need to power our economy. Yeah, and I think that I mean that's a great point, John, about uh, the Japanese takeaway from World War One: naval power and the blockade and resources. We we got a question uh, through the chat feature uh, about uh, the Washington Naval Conference, uh, and I'm glad that was raised because I want to highlight a point in the Japanese note delivered to the United States uh, on December seventh. Uh, it's on page uh, three. Uh, the note reads, it is unacceptable to the Japanese government in that such an arrangement cannot but be considered as an extension to French Indochina of a system similar to the nine power treaty structure, which is the chief factor responsible for the president, present predicament of East Asia. Now, this is in direct reference to U.S. insistence that um, French Indochina be vacated by the Japanese, and that relates to the larger issue of Japanese occupation of China. But what's notable for our purposes here is Japan's complaint again about about the Washington Naval Conference and its belief that it was treated as an inferior power uh, and, and for Japan's government uh, by the early 1940s. Uh, this is something that shows the Western powers can't really be trusted or, or yeah. uh, negotiated with. That's a great point, David. We just got a great question from Larry kind of as a follow-up to that. I'll just read his question. It's really well written. The U.S. note hints at an agreement in principle, an overall agreement being near. The Japanese note has a far different tenor. Was, was the U.S. negotiating in good faith toward re, truly reaching a trade agreement? Uh, or uh, And were uh, Japanese negotiators aware that they were being used as a Trojan horse? Or were military decisions unknown to them? So just as a kind of follow-up to that. Oh, yeah. Uh, both great questions. Uh, John may be able to tell tell us more about how much the Japanese ambassador and his diplomats knew about the preparations 
uh, for the attack. It's my understanding that they knew it was going to come. Oh, the Japanese uh, diplomats knew? Mm, not on Pearl Harbor. But they knew an attack was coming. Yes, oh, yes. Right, wow. right, they didn't, yeah, they didn't know the particulars. Yeah, yeah, very important distinction. But they, uh, and, and you know, we, 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 we'll address the conspiracy question, uh, of course, at some point. I don't know if this is the time to do it. Sure, go ahead, David. But um, with regard to this issue of negotiations, um, because of the cracking of the Japanese diplomatic code, the United States knew that if uh, Japan was not able, if the diplomats were not able to come to some sort of um, satisfactory uh, outcome, uh, that an attack would occur after the 27th, but not known where. There, yeah, it, it'll, 27th of November, excuse me. It, it, in a way, uh, if I'll use a Japanese term, there's there's a kabuki going on here with with neither side really being really being forthcoming. Now, yeah, the Japanese since the summer of 1941 had been saying, OK, we're we're dedicated to a diplomatic solution, but we're going to prepare for war at the same time. And preparing for war meant preparing for an attack on Pearl Harbor. That was decided on fairly early on. Um, now, you know, the understanding was if we reach some kind of an agreement, then we won't go forward with it. Well, the Americans who, as Dave points out, had broken the code, knew that plans were going on. So their assumption was the Japanese are, are absolutely not play, uh, 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 operating in good faith here. They're all they're doing is trying to string us along and they're going to hit us as soon as they're, as soon as they're ready. This helps to ex explain this U.S. note, which really uh, can only be understood in, 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 as a response to uh, the, the final, what was regarded as the, the, the final Japanese modus vivendi, right? It was, it was going to be just a way of getting along. It wasn't going to settle anything long term, but just get things, you know, get, uh, just re represent an easing of tensions. This proposal was, uh, made by the Japanese was, if we, if the Americans resume sales of stuff, especially oil, right? So they, in other words, they reverse the freezing of assets, and they help mediate a peace with 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 China. We will go to the table with the Chinese. The Japanese always said from the from the start that they just wanted they wanted a, nego a negotiated settlement with China, uh, and we will withdraw our forces from southern Indochina and all of Indochina once we have a settlement with China. FDR seems to have taken this proposal seriously, and then he ran it by Chiang Kai-shek in China, and he said, no, this is appeasement. You're just giving the Japanese what they want. And he ran it by Churchill, and Churchill also said, yeah, that, that's appeasement. You don't want any part of this. And so FDR said, well, okay, we're not going to do, do this. And they composed a note that, because after, and, and, all, and remember, at this point, the administration also wonders if the Japanese are negotiating good faith because they because because the administration knows Japan is 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 preparing for an attack somewhere. Mm. Um, so they say, okay, we're just going to fire back with a statement of principles, the kind that the Japanese hate, and we are even going to say in our list of requirements that Japan has to remove all its forces from China and Indochina. Which is that is a con a condition that. 
Everyone in the administration who knows anything about China understands that the Japanese aren't going to do it. In fact, the Japanese assumed that it also meant Manchuria. In fact, the administration probably didn't mean to include Manchuria in that. But still, as soon as the Japanese got this, they said, okay, here's evidence that they're not even negotiating. They don't even care about negotiating. They're playing us for fools. The only the only option here is to attack. Yeah, which, which happened two weeks later, roughly. Yeah. After that note. That's amazing. Amazing. Um, so what about specifically the question? So, okay, so FDR and his administration knew that the Jap Japanese were, were planning for an attack. What about this, this uh, to go back to the conspiracy theory sort of thing, FDR didn't know that the attack was going to take place at Pearl Harbor, right, if I'm, if I'm understanding correctly. Um, what about the claim that he, that he allowed it to happen in order to use that as a pretext to get the United States involved in World War II. Is there any, any, any legs to that? You know, there's, there's no evidence to show he knew personally that Pearl Harbor was going to be attacked and took measures indirect or direct uh, to prevent an adequate warning uh, to be uh, delivered. Now, I think there's two, two ways to interpret this still durable and widespread conspiracy. One, the nature of conspiracy theories in general uh, and, and Americans' predilection for them. Uh, but two, and this is the one I'll, I'll first address, um, are the facts available to us. Um, let's think about knowledge of Japan preparing for an attack. It, it's the, 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 the likely targets, the most likely targets are, are in the Pacific, starting with the Philippines, uh, Guam, uh, Wake Island, uh, the fleet at Pearl Harbor was seen as a deterrent, not uh, a target. Uh, and the base commander, uh, Herbert uh, Kimmel, um, made some mistakes in retrospect, uh, you know, big mistakes in retrospect, uh, and perhaps they should have been seen at the time, but he had reasons for these mistakes. They're not part of a conspiracy. He had bunched up the uh, aircraft uh, at Pearl Harbor because there was more of a concern of sabotage by uh, agents of Japan that could already be on, on, on the islands. Um, a warning had been delivered uh, to the base, uh, and a uh, Western Union telegram was being delivered on the morning of December 7th um, to warn of, uh, to say, take added precautions. Uh, this was because the message couldn't be delivered for, because of technical problems uh, through the regular uh, signal core method. So, um, I mean, just a quick review of just a few of the facts uh, shows that we just don't have the evidence of that conspiracy. Uh, I'll stop there to let John say more about that, and then we can address the whole uh, yeah, the, fraction of a conspiracy in the first place. The conspiracy theory had its origin among leading anti-interventionists almost immediately after it happened, just because it ended the debate over over whether to go to war. I mean, and, and in fact, the America First Committee, the leading anti-interventionist organization, folded up in the, within a couple within a couple of weeks, and and and, and so. There had always been a tendency on the part of FDR's opponents to accuse him of conspiracy. So there, there was a long history of this, uh, and and of course FDR was a very devious guy. So in many ways he 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 played into this himself. But um, uh, so immediately there there there's talk that this had to have been a setup just to give you know so for FDR to win on this on this issue. But it really seemed to to. Uh, 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 to take on a life of its own after the war, when it became no became known that 
the Japanese diplomatic codes had been broken. Because then, the, well, of course we had to have known that the attack was, was going to come. In fact, U.S. I mean, US uh, uh, cryptanalysts did not know locations. Couldn't They couldn't get specific locations from Japanese codes. All they, But they had good reason to think that an attack would come somewhere. But I'll tell you what I think is the knockdown argument against the conspiracy theory. If FDR wanted to go to war, he wanted a war in Europe, right? He wanted to help Great Britain. He wanted to defeat Germany. He always seems to have seen Japan as a distraction from that. Hmm. And um, if, if four days after Pearl Harbor, Germany had not obliged by declaring war on the United States, what would the attack on Pearl Harbor have done that FDR wanted? All it would have done was embroiled the United States in a war against Japan that would have distracted it from what was going on in, in Europe. So if, if, if it was some kind of conspiracy on the part of FDR, it was a dumb conspiracy. And FDR didn't do dumb conspiracies. That's a great, that's a great point. There was no formal uh, alliance between Germany and Japan. He, well, it was. I mean, the, 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 the tripartite pact was a formal alliance, but it's not as though we expect from Hitler fidelity to, to, to written alliances, right? If he didn't have to, you know, he didn't have to declare war. That's a great point. Four days after. That would have been, a, that would have been a, an amazing prediction to have seen that coming, I think. That's a great point. You know, if you, if you, oh, sorry, I've got just a quick add-on. Um, you know, there are examples, irrefutable, irrefutable examples of of Roosevelt being very devious and misleading the American public about what's going on uh, on the eve of war. Uh, and the prime example is his uh, press conference about the uh, attack on the USS Greer in uh, early September 1941, mm -hmm. uh, which itself is an old World War I destroyer in the North Atlantic because of, of Lend-Lease. And in Roosevelt's present presentation of the altercation between the Greer and a German U-boat, which did not bring any casualties or damage to either vessel, was that it was unprovoked that the Germans fired first, which was technically true. What he left out was that the Greer had been aiding a British plane to attack the sub. Mm. Uh, which had then responded by firing not at the small British aircraft, which it didn't see, but the USS uh, Greer. Uh, and then that enabled Roosevelt to issue as commander-in-chief a shoot-on-sight order for U.S. naval vessels in the North Atlantic. And, and Hitler, actually, in a rare example of restraint, tells the, you know, uh, Donitz, the head of the uh, uh, the uh, Kriegsmarine, you know, don't don't start trouble with the Americans if you can avoid it. So uh, as Senator Robert Taft pointed out, we're in an undeclared state of war in the North Atlantic with Germany in the fall of 1941, and there's been no declaration by by Congress. So this, you know, revives those concerns about the aggrandizement of power by Roosevelt in the executive branch. Yeah, that's fascinating. I can see how that that sort of thing might sort of after the fact contributed to certain scholars making the argument that Roosevelt was up to something in the Pacific, but or at Pearl Harbor. But can I so can I ask one other sort of follow-up to this question? To talk about the the fleet at uh, at Pearl Harbor. And just sort of in general, the state of, of the naval uh, U.S. naval forces at the time was was the fleet at Pearl Harbor. What did, did that comprise a major part of the of the United States naval fleet in the Pacific at that time? Um, the part of the reason I ask is if Roosevelt knew that the that an attack on Pearl Harbor was pending, why would he have 
mm -hmm. place such a large portion of the U.S. naval fleet in that location and not have done anything to really prepare for uh, for the attack. Um, I'm not sure if that question's worth answering or not, but I'm, I'm curious about the sort of overall yeah. state of U.S. naval forces in the Pacific and at Pearl Harbor if, at the time. If, if, if you look at it in terms of overall tonnage, it was a very significant percentage of the of the U.S. Navy. Um, the, what really, what, what, what the conspiracy theorists usually focus on is the fact that the aircraft carriers conveniently weren't there. Um, and, and that what we know now in retrospect is that aircraft carriers were far more important than battleships to the outcome of the war. So the theory goes, FDR thought, you know what, these are old battleships anyway. We can sacrifice them as long as the carriers are somewhere else. I still don't buy it. Uh, because, but but in fact, the loss, the loss of the of the ships, right? Where were four battleships sunk? Two of them found their way back into action within a year. There were only two of them. There were only two that were total that were total losses. But yes, the basic answer to your question is the stat, the, the U.S. Pacific. Most of the U.S. Pacific fleet was at Pearl Harbor. I see. And, uh, and we know also that on the same day as Pearl Harbor or the day after the Japanese attack, not only, I mean, they also attacked Guam, Wake Island, Midway and others. Were, uh, was there, were there naval forces present or uh, were we prepared for defensive attacks, I guess, attacks on those locations as well? Or were we, was our, our forces, were our forces pretty much concentrated in Pearl Harbor? You know, the, the, this is this raises the issue of uh, Douglas MacArthur's um, incompetence. Uh, and one of his biographers, William Manchester, has been really harsh about about MacArthur and, 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 and contends that he practically went into a catatonic state. His aides were pleading him to take action, to evacuate uh, um, strategic bombers off airfields. Um, that wasn't done, so they were destroyed by the attacking Japanese forces. Um, Evan Maudsley has is, is argued that... Um, MacArthur wasn't so incompetent at the moment of attack. Where he, where he was incompetent was not preparing Corregidor more. And and I think Maudsley's even or actually this is John wow. Keegan. I think uh, John can perhaps correct me if it's it's Keegan uh, or Maudsley. But um, that if he had prepared Corregidor more, that uh, U.S. and uh, Filipino troops might have been able to hold out indefinitely. Hmm. Was MacArthur at? Where was MacArthur at on the day of the attack? He was in Manila. Was in Manila. Oh, okay. All right. Which was also attacked, right? Yeah, the right after Philippines, right? That's amazing. So, but there were not. In, in answer to your question, there were not. There were not significant U.S. naval forces uh, in these other locations. Strategic, strategically placed in other locations. Yeah. That's that's. I find that really interesting. Um, so, uh, can I take a step back, maybe, and just ask? Uh, I have two larger questions. One, and feel free to pick one or neither of these questions, gentlemen, if you like, but. Um, one, how prepared was the United States for an attack in general? And, uh, and, and then maybe to piggyback on that, how prepared was the United States for war, uh, the war that followed uh, the attack? And the other question I'm interested in is, um, um, oh shoot, I had it and I lost it. Um, what was my other question? I guess I only have one question for now until I think it. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I should write these down. Well, um, the United States was um, preparing um, for the last two years. A prime example of this was the passage of the Burke-Wadsworth Act in, in September of 1940. 
which was a, a big victory, but a hard-fought one for the Roosevelt administration and its allies in Congress. So it instituted the first peacetime draft. It was part of um, military preparedness in, in other ways, including uh, more defense production, more production of, of weapons. Uh, and it, but to get it through, uh, the congressional sponsors and Roosevelt had to accept a, a one-year time uh, on it, which, you know, in retrospect, seems really short-sighted if, if you're preparing for this gathering storm. If you think about what's going on in in Europe and the Pacific, to say, well, we'll prepare, but just for a year. Um, I mean, that doesn't make much sense. I mean, you're going to prepare an, an army and go to the cost and expense of. Uh, of training hundreds of thousands of troops and arming them and then just send them home after a year. So when it came up for renewal in the fall of 1941, uh, it was renewed, but by only one vote uh, in the House. So the anti-interventionists were clearly showing their clout uh, and their real political power uh, in that. Uh, But Roosevelt, this was all part of Roosevelt's preparedness. If you look at, you know, I mentioned the Greer incident earlier, and, and, and it shows some deviousness on um, Roosevelt's part. But the brunt of the address is Roosevelt talking about how we can't wait for the Germans, for the Nazis to show up in the Western Hemisphere before we do anything uh, about it. And he's been saying this uh, consistently. Um, you know, I mean, you get Wilkie sitting in January of, of, of 1941. Roosevelt's oh. right. British liberty is uh, our liberty. And, and that's what Roosevelt had been saying. Oh, that's fascinating. That's amazing. I would add to that, uh, as important as Burke Wadsworth was the uh, the Two Ocean Navy Act that was passed in 1938, uh, which 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 called for a huge expansion in the in the size of uh, of the U.S. Navy. Uh, of course, it takes a long time to build battleships, but the Japanese understood that these battleships were being built, and then and aircraft carriers in particular, and that. In late 1942 and 1943, a bunch of new ships were supposed to come online. And in part, this colored the Japanese decision to attack. If we attack now, we've got a window where we can have superiority in the Pacific. If we wait another year, we're not going to have it. Fascinating. Now, these are great points. And that, as you were explaining this, it reminded me of my other possible question, which is really just the flip, of, flip side of this question of how prepared was the United States for the attack? The other question I was going to ask was, why were the Japanese attacks of December seventh and eighth so successful? Was it was it a was it was it because of a of a lack of preparedness on the United States, or was it good planning by the Japanese? We know there are some delays in in when planes leave and when the attacks take place on various places. Can can we talk about why the Japanese attacks were successful? If they were successful, and to what extent they were successful? Well, they 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 were not as successful as they could have been. Uh, we did get a question about uh, why the oil uh, storage area wasn't yes. attacked at uh, Pearl Harbor and the and the dry docks and the infrastructure. That was because of a miscommunication in in uh, the uh, attacking uh, force. Um, a signal was misunderstood. So there are going to be two signals. One, you know, if the if the Americans are prepared and they really mount. Um, a successful counterattack. Uh, we won't go after them. Um, they were not prepared, and so the, the the field was open for Japan to carry out that attack. But because of the miscommunication, that wasn't uh, done. Yeah, it, it it was a success on the tactical level. It did what it was supposed to. It 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 bogged down the Jap- the, the U.S. Pacific Fleet for a good six months. 
Um, but it didn't do more than that. I mean, had the oil tanks been targeted, had the dry dock facilities been targeted, uh, that could have done more long-term harm. If the U.S. Pacific Fleet had had to abandon Pearl Harbor and rebase on the West Coast, that really would have uh, uh, would have made it difficult to interfere with Japan's long-term plans. Um, I, I will say I will say this: Why did it succeed so well at the tactical level? The sheer audacity of the maneuver was was shocking. In fact, the the, the understanding among many Americans, I think, including FDR, was that the Japanese could never have come up with this on their own. Um, and a lot of this has to do with racist stereotypes about the Japanese. They're little guys with buck teeth and you know Coke bottle glasses, and 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 they're not really uh, competent on their own. But it, the Germans must have planned this for them. In fact, this was one of the most audacious and ambitious military operations of all time. Sailing a fleet, a task force of six aircraft carriers, a couple of battleships, and all kinds of escorts, uh, about a third of the way around the world. World. And doing so without having been detected is is really an amazing feat. And and the way they did this was they plotted the course in advance using a, a passenger liner um, that sailed the exact course that the, uh, that the 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 task force was supposed to take, and watching to see if there were any other ships encountered or if any planes were to fly overhead. And the response was no planes encountered, no ships encountered. No one will see us if we follow this route. Wow, that's amazing. So they literally found the, the dead spot in the yeah. Pacific. Unbelievable. Yeah, you know, we did. We got a question about was the attack even needed? Yes. Uh, and I think, I think yes, it, it, absolutely it was. It wouldn't have been enough for uh, Japan simply to hit the Philippines, uh, to hit um, prime American targets in the Pacific. It needed to do so with Pearl Harbor. But there's a variant on this question, which... Which I think is one of my was one of the most fun what ifs of the war. Uh, the decision to attack Pearl Harbor was based on a faulty assumption on the part of the Japanese that the Americans would not stand by and allow British colonies and Dutch colonies in Asia to be overrun. The risk was too great that in the midst of the operation to take the Dutch East Indies and Burma and Malaya and etc. Uh, that um, the U.S. Pacific Fleet would pounce upon the transports. So we have to neutralize that threat. The what if, if the Japanese, some in, the, in fact, some in the Army suggested this, if, if what we're really going for here are the resources of Southeast Asia, why don't we just take Burma, Malaya, Dutch East Indies, we'll get what we want and leave the Americans alone. The Navy said there's no way that they'll do that. What the Japanese weren't thinking of is, the president has to go to the Congress for a declaration of war. And can FDR credibly ask Congress for war to protect European colonies? My my sense is he could not have done that. He could who could not have done that, John? Can you FDR could not have got could not have asked Congress. He would not have asked because he would know that he wouldn't have would not have gotten it. Without the attack on Pearl Harbor, it, it, it took an attack. I, I mean, an attack on on the Philippines. I think Philippines. He, he would have, either way, right? But but if the Japanese had steered clear of any American uh, uh, colony or or or, or you know, Hawaii or the Philippines and only focused on European colonies, then uh, then the the then yeah, the Japanese would have been in a much stronger position. Yeah, well, that's that's. I was actually going to be my next question was. Uh, the effect of, of FDR's speech, which we also recommended um, people should read today. It's a very short speech, 
requesting an act of our declaration of war from Congress, but of course, very well known, uh, one of the one of the most um, well known openings of a speech uh, in U.S. history. But what was the effect of the speech itself, or after, or did that, at that point FDR had very little lifting to do? Is that what you're suggesting, John? Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was clear the, the outrage. Uh, there was so much outrage in the country. One of my favorite stories about the day of Pearl Harbor. Um, there was a, a rally of the America First Committee going on at, in my hometown of Pittsburgh at Soldiers and Sailors Hall. I actually will never forget this because that's where my high school graduation was. Soldiers and Sailors Hall. Ger Senator Gerald Nye of North Dakota was there. I don't think Lindbergh was, but there were all, a bunch of the big names of the anti-interventionist movement were, were there talking about how we, you know, we have to resist this administration's efforts to embroil us in war. And then somebody came into the hall and yelled, the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor. And uh, they threw him out. They said, yeah, come on, this is just an administration plant trying to cause trouble. Uh, and then a little while later, a message came and said, no, it really happened. Wow. And the rally broke up, and the leaders of America first said, well, what do we do now? And they said, yeah, we, we, have to, we have to pack up and close up the organization. Wow. So the effect on the public mind, it seems to me, was pretty... Pretty instantaneous. Instantaneous and overwhelming. Japan had to lose. And in fact, you know, some of the expressions of anti-Japanese sentiment bordered on the genocidal, right? We have to exterminate the Japanese. Yeah, yeah which we know there were, of course, there were internment camps and, and other things that followed. But um, we talk about, can we talk, can you say something about the effect that that mindset had on uh, Japanese Americans? Um Dave, you want to take this one? Well, yeah, I mean, there, I mean, you know, there's there's great alarm uh, in the Japanese American communities uh, in the United States, uh, and the the vast majority of of Japanese Americans are in on the West Coast, um, and and we should keep in mind that uh, there were a lot of Japanese nationals who had lived in the United States almost all of their lives, but they hadn't been born in the United States, and as a result of a 1790 law. Uh, they could never become U.S. citizens. Naturalization was limited uh, to people of uh, uh, European descent, to whites. Uh, so there were a lot of longtime residents, and then their children uh, were, were citizens. This is the Issei and the Nisei. So there's alarm uh, over what's going to happen and efforts to show a patriotism. Um, but it doesn't take long for Executive Order 966, uh, 9066 to come down. This is in May of 1942, the setting up of the military district. The president can use his powers as commander in chief uh, to authorize the military to, to carry out the roundups. Uh, and, and, you know, to speak to, to John's uh, point about um, how much racism and hatred there was against uh, the Japanese, I mean, there were a lot of people preparing uh, to push the Japanese along and to take advantage uh, of the situation to buy their assets for pennies on the dollar. I mean, people have, families had their, their life, life's wealth wiped out because they had, to, they had to liquidate all their assets and no one would give them a fair price uh, and they could only take a couple suitcases with them. It, to Dave's point about uh, uh, Jap people of Japanese descent not being able to become immigrants, um, this became an issue when they were first taken to the uh, to processing centers. Uh, they were asked to um, whether they would be willing to renounce their loyalty to the Japanese Empire, hmm. and, uh, and 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 basically it was suggested that you don't have to go to a camp if you if if you do this. Well, most of them were very hesitant to do that, mainly because we're not citizens here. If we renounce our Japanese citizenship, we're stateless. 
and and, and so so even the, even so the failure to to renounce Japan was interpreted by U.S. authorities as saying, "Oh, well, I'm loyal to the emperor, and therefore I'm going to take their side in a war." When in most cases, it really seems to have meant nothing more than I'm not about to declare myself without any kind of you know citizenship whatsoever. I see. That's fascinating. I'm sorry, go ahead, David. Oh, I just wanted to point out that the, the, the major rationale for it is that, and this is what the military argued in a, in, a, in a case before the Supreme Court, Korematsu versus the United States. It said, look, there's just no way to distinguish loyal from disloyal Japanese, and we have evidence that there was some sabotage activity or espionage in these communities. Um, it turns out that that, that uh, so-called evidence was, was fabricated um, and that uh, General John DeWitt uh, had, had misrepresented uh, the actual facts to the Supreme Court, which led the Supreme Court to take the um, very unusual, but uh, in this case certainly justified step of vacating the Korematsu decision, which had upheld the internment as constitutional. Yeah, that's that. I find that very interesting because we do know there were cases of sabotage on the part of Germans, German Americans. I mean, of course, even in World War One, we had. Um, important acts of sabotage on the part of some Germans, but there were there were some well-known cases in World War II as well, and yet we didn't take the extraordinary step of rounding up German-Americans. I mean, well, just there were, that's very difficult. Yeah, yeah. You know, as I like to tell my students, if everyone of German and, and Italian ancestry was rounded up like the Japanese were, there wouldn't have been enough troops in the U.S. forces to fight and win World War yeah. uh, II. Certainly, uh, if you look at uh, people of German ancestry, which make up the single biggest uh, European group in the United States. Uh, and that was true uh, in the 1940s as well. Now, there were some camps in which Germans and German-Americans were placed, but in, in almost every instance, those people received due process, not in every instance. And, and, and certainly when you look at what how the Japanese um, uh, roundup took place, it's, it, there's a huge degree of difference with, um, with, with some Germans and Italians. In fact, I, I've read that... Uh, I read that J. Edgar Hoover wasn't crazy about the, the mass internment. He said, the FBI knows who the troublemakers are. <laughs> Just let us get them. And that's sort of the approach that was taken with the German and Italians, right? There's, there's not a wholesale roundup of, of them, but there's an understanding there are some Germans out there who are uh, spending their weekends sig heiling, and, 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 and maybe we should just deal with those. Yeah, the, the FBI had really permeated the, the uh, Bund, the, the German-American Bund, and, and, and really knew you know, who were, were the Nazi uh, hmm. sympathizers. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the only, the only sabotage that takes place uh, are some German-Americans who, uh, some uh, Americans um, who speak uh, perfect German, they're born to German uh, parents, they go back for training in Germany and, and they c try to carry out sabotage on Long Island. They're actually caught by a, a lone Coast Guardsman and, you know, it's, uh, you know, a, a, a clown show. Uh, but but Roosevelt took the extraordinary uh, action of saying, "I want those guys dead as quickly as possible." So, even wow. though they were citizens, they were they were tried as um, as spies, as enemy combatants, and and denied uh, a constitutional process either through yeah. the civil courts or military courts. And were they executed, David? Do you know? Yeah, they were hanged. They were ha they were hanged. Yeah, wow. very quickly. Yeah, the, the end for traitors, I guess. Um, so I'm glad you. I'm glad you. This is very enlightening, Larry. I just point out mentions the, the fact that some Italians were rounded up. There was some limited roundup of roundup of Italians. Um, you mentioned Joe DiMaggio's family in San Francisco being rounded up. I didn't mind that. 
Um, but but the, but the as you, both of you were saying, the fact that the Japanese in America were essentially stateless, um, and compared to the fact that there were so many German Americans, but a lot of them were loyal and we needed them to fight, that that helps provide some, not to justify it, but it helps provide some perspective on why the Japanese suffered a kind of treatment that was very much different than uh, German Americans or Italian Americans. And thank you for that clarification. Yeah. Um, you know, just to, oh, if I may, uh, Chris, I want to come back to your your question about the the Pearl Harbor speech uh, by Roosevelt. Uh, I I think one thing. Um, that gets overlooked, and I'd like John's perspective on this. It struck me as I was rereading it last night that it, toward the end, uh, Roosevelt makes this statement, no matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in the righteous, righteous might will win through to absolute victory. <laughs> uh, now, two notable things, that righteous might uh, has a lot of echoes with, with Wilson's uh, yeah. request for a war address in, in uh in um, in uh, April of 1917, when he talks about uh, universal dominion of right, uh, but I think it's the phrase "absolute victory" that's that's more notable. I wonder if this is uh, Roosevelt already laying the groundwork for unconditional victory, uh, or is this reading too much into word choice? What do you think, John? Um, I I hadn't thought about that before. It's it's possible, but my sense is that. Uh, FDR's decision at Casablanca to, to 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 announce unconditional surrender was more a way of uh, de- of of handling Stalin. That Stalin was disappointed by the failure to to launch a second front in Europe in 1942, and that just as a way of of letting Stalin know we're really in this fight, we're going to announce that. I, I I could be wrong on that though. There 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 may be something to. Uh, he may have already been thinking along those lines. Yeah, that's a great also, question, David. I, I hadn't, I hadn't mentioned, I hadn't noticed the absolute victory part before. That's a, that's an interesting. I did note as you were saying that that righteousness line. It was, it, yeah, just smacked of Woodrow Wilson, um, his his great progressive captain, as he calls him. Right. You know, I mean, it's one of the fascinating elements of Roosevelt's presidency, particularly when it comes to foreign relations and his conduct of of war, is is how Wilsonian he is without ever. You know, crediting Wilson. Yeah. Uh, you know, and see, I mean, he he wasn't a deep thinker, Roosevelt, but he was a very canny thinker and 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 quite the political animal. And he understood that, you know, if he if he tied himself too much to the ghost of of, of Wilson, he might not get the the United Nations uh, through, which he's already thinking about um, before the U.S. is in the war. I mean, it surprises a lot of students. Uh, to read World War II-era documents and hear references to the United Nations. And, and that phrase comes from all those nations that signed the Atlantic Charter. Right. It, it, it is interesting to look at that speech and see what's not Wilsonian. He, he's not talking about a war against humanity. Safe, none of that safe for democracy stuff. It's these SOBs have attacked us. We're going to wipe them out. Yeah, um, but but you're but you're right. FDR. I, I mean, there's plenty of evidence for FDR's Wilsonianism, and you see it all over the Atlantic Charter, which was concluded just a few months before the attack on Pearl Harbor. No, that's a that's a great point, John, because Wilson's war message to Congress, he went way out of his way to avoid any any suggestion that we were entering this war for sort of selfish or self-interested purposes, right? So that's a great point. Um, Jim, Jim asked about Eleanor's, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's speech before FDR's. Are either of you familiar with that and want to say anything about it? I'm actually not familiar with it, so I'd have to look it up. But I don't know of it offhand either. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not familiar either. I was, I was thinking more about, um, 
uh, Roosevelt's arsenal of democracy speech because we had the Wilkie speech uh, oh, going. Yeah. I, I th- I, if I remember correctly, um, Roosevelt was scheduled to deliver a speech on December 8th uh, about uh, the U.S. deteriorating position uh, with um, Japan. Uh, but I don't know the particulars of that speech. I'm sure a draft uh, is available. David, do you know offhand when was the Arsenal of Democracy speech? Uh, it was December 29th, 1940, okay. and then um, a few days later in early January. I think it's January 6th. Uh, coincidentally, uh, you have the Four Freedoms speech. Interesting. Yeah, because uh, those... you, that's a prime example of Wilsonianism yeah, too. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, I mean the the, the fight against uh, you know uh, dictatorship and. Uh, and, and those sorts of things. Roosevelt couches our efforts, limited as they might have been up to that point, uh, in terms of combating, demo- uh, defending the es- essentials of democracy or essential democracy against dictatorship, uh, these sorts of things. That sounds very Wilsonian. Um, I, I don't want to cut you off if you have more thoughts on this. This has been fascinating. I, I, I did want to sort of Go ahead, David. You wanted to oh, start. yeah. I, I wanted to, to bring uh, Roosevelt's speech back to a question that was asked early on uh, this morning. So if the, the line that follows the, the one I quoted earlier is, uh, I believe, this is Roosevelt speaking, I believe I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but we will make very certain that this form of treachery shall never endanger, uh, endanger us again. Uh, we were asked a question, uh, is Pearl Harbor's, the attack on Pearl Harbor, the foundation of subsequent... Uh, foreign policy, uh, I think one way we can understand that question is to, to rephrase it slightly, is is American foreign policy after 1941 predicated uh, on, on, on just national security and, and preparing for uh, threats like that uh, or attacks like that against uh, uh, Pearl Harbor? Um, and, and my own thought is that, well, I mean, you can say yes, but then you, you generalize the problem so much that it, it, beca- it kind of stretches uh, apart. I think uh, perhaps the use of nuclear weapons to end World War II is, is much more uh, of an influence on Cold War foreign policy and preparing uh, for threats than than Pearl Harbor uh, it, it itself, though Pearl Harbor is is a, a evoked time and time again, as is the uh, the appeasement uh, of, of of Munich. Now, just one notable example in, in which Pearl Harbor is used as a as a metaphor. Um, it's it's famously noted, although we have to ask ourselves whether Bobby Kennedy really was thinking at the time. He later said this, like as he said after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, I didn't want my brother to be the next Tojo. Um, you know, we can't oh, attack Cuba without warning because that would be as bad as Pearl Harbor. Well, that's yeah. Just thinking about this, uh, and, this and, and I think this dovetails with the, the idea to the legend of American isolationism. Um, it, it's certainly, there's certainly a, a larger American narrative of uh, the Americans that really just want to stay on this side of the Atlantic and Pacific and mind our own business, and then once we're attacked, we respond with, you know, with with overwhelming force. And and we saw some of this with 9/11. Hey, wait a minute, you know, this is uh, uh, this was this was out of the blue. It has nothing to do with anything the United States has ever uh, has ever done. We are uh, we are innocent victims, and now we're now we're going to to fight back, right? So we were just minding our own business when we were attacked. Yeah. No, that's great. I, I guess I wasn't. Those are fascinating answers. I wasn't thinking about this from that perspective. 
well, sir, to go back to David's point, the effect, one effect of Pearl Harbor might have been that it led to a kind of um, uh, restraint in our foreign policy in the future. I wasn't thinking about it. I, I guess I was wondering, in terms of being more proactive, more forward thinking, maybe even being preemptive, so that we didn't find ourselves caught off guard in the way that we yeah. did at Pearl Harbor. Did that have an effect in Cold War strategy? I, I Here's one of my favorite uh, rep examples of a sea change in how Americans thought about their role in the world. 1940, Germany overruns France. And while Americans don't like that, virtually no one in America is saying, oh, we better go to war to, prevent, to, to protect France. Mm -hmm. or even to, to protect England. Right. right. Ten years later, North Korea attacked, ten years later, North Korea attacked South Korea. Immediately, U.S. forces are on their way to help defend South Korea. Who would have cared about South Korea had it not been for, uh, for the attack on Pearl Harbor? That's a great point. Yeah. yeah, that's a good comparison. And and at the time, France is overrun. The United States Army is smaller than Belgium's. I mean, the Belgium's were fighting with the French. Uh, to prevent that. Uh, and then five years later, uh, as World War II draws to a close, the uh, U.S. military exceeds 16 million. At the outset, we talked about uh, American opinion on the eve of Pearl Harbor. And, and of course, it's really hard to generalize about it because it depends on who you ask. But public opinion polls established two things with almost certainty, right? Overwhelming majorities of Americans said, we want Great Britain and France to win the war. And after France locked out, we want Britain to win. And we don't want to go to war ourselves. This huge debate that went on over things like Lend-Lease actually went on over a very narrow question. Both sides, remember, both sides in the argument shared the belief that the U.S. shouldn't get involved in the war or shouldn't enter the war, but that Britain, Britain must win. Uh, the difference was the administration said, all-out aid to Britain short of war is going to be the best way for us to stay out because the British can do the jobs themselves. Whereas the opponents of Lend-Lee said, no, this is going to bring us into war. Mm. Right? That's really what the fight was about. Yeah. Amazing. So, John, can I circle back on that point? That's a great point. I wanted to circle back to, to the effect of Pearl Harbor, the attack on Pearl Harbor. So you and David said earlier that the effect on public opinion – Toward Japan was immediate, right? It was we had to we had to fight and we had to win. Did Americans um, also sort of overnight instantaneously know that that would did that change our opinions about getting involved in a war in Europe as well, or did that only follow later with the declaration of war by Germany, or did Americans know that the, that the attack on Pearl Harbor and our our change in stance was going to lead to war on two fronts in two theaters? Hmm. Well, I mean. That, yeah, that's a great question, Chris. And even with uh, Germany declaring war, uh, and I can't remember the exact figures, but polls were showing a lot of Americans thought, no, uh, Germany's not an immediate threat to us because they're still going after Great Britain and the Soviet Union, so we'll just keep sending them Lend-Lease and we'll take care of Japan. Uh, and then if the G Germans are still a problem, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of them. Um, now, that's, that's just not possible. That's not a good strategy uh, at all. Uh, and I think this is one of the factors in, in Roosevelt's decision to approve a circuitous inter, uh, entry into the European theater uh, through North Africa, through Operation Torch. 
Uh, I mean, his chief of staff, George Marshall, Marshall, for whom he had a great deal of respect, was was urging the opening of a second front in France um, as soon as possible, and 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 the Soviets were pushing for that uh, as well. Um, on the Teaching American uh, History uh, website, there's a there's a great document um, in which uh, the president and Marshall are present uh, present uh, speaking with um, the Soviet ambassador Molotov. Uh, who's very artfully <laughs> and very persistently pushing the Americans into a corner to commit to a second front. Uh, and and uh, if you read that, you can see how Roosevelt artfully himself dodges such a firm commitment. That's interesting. That reminds me, by the way, of another question I meant to ask earlier. Can you just say something about, you mentioned Marshall, right? Can you say something, either of you, about FDR's main advisors on foreign policy? Who was he? To what extent was he influenced by his advisors, and who was doing the advising? Who were the major influences? That's yeah. That, that's a that's a that's a great question. I mean, he, he he relied very heavily on Marshall when it came to military affairs, but not so. I mean, not on matters of of foreign policy generally. Um, I, I think that 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 often his he, he often tended to fall back on the same people for. Advice generally, like so, he, he would talk to Harry Hopkins about just about anything. Right. Um, uh, Admiral Leahy was probably more of an influence, at least you know, before Pearl Harbor, than 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 Marshall was. Uh, you know, there it's it's hard it's hard to say how much influence Cordell Hull, the actual Secretary of State, had. Um, many he never had a great relationship with uh, with FDR to begin with. But to a large extent, FDR let let Hull deal with the, the Japanese, uh, and you know, however he wanted. So yeah, it's 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 a tough question. I don't know of any particular person that would have been regarded as FDR's foreign policy guru. Do you, Dave? No, I mean, there's no Colonel House uh, yeah, like you yeah. have with uh, with Wilson. I mean, uh, yeah, Hull is not um, uh, someone that uh, Roosevelt relies heavily on. And, and just as a quick aside, I, I want to point out that um, uh, in one of the documents we had, the the um, uh, U.S. note on um, uh, or the U.S. response to the Japanese note, there's this outburst from uh, Hull, which is quite uncharacteristic, uh, which he says, I've never seen such uh, infamous falsehoods and distortions. That's very un-Cordell Hull-like. Uh, but to come back to the original question, uh, I would say Sumner Wells, uh, uh, mm. until he's pushed to the side because of personal scandal, was was far more influential than than Hull and someone that that Roosevelt, who who we knew from life before politics, uh, relied heavily on. It's Sumner Wells who's really uh, the architect of uh, the Atlantic Charter. I mean, he's the one working through the drafts. That's uh, right. It's not Cordell Hull doing that. That's fascinating. So we only have about three minutes left. Uh, Larry, just maybe a quick question here. Larry asked about the relationship between FDR and Eisenhower. Maybe that's a seminar in itself, but when does that relate? My understanding is FDR doesn't really know Eisenhower personally until well into the war, uh, right? So. Um, yeah. Um, one thing about Marshall. He wants to. He wants the job that his former mentor Pershing had. He wants to command the American Expeditionary Force, and it breaks his heart when he doesn't get it. And the reason FDR says he's not going to get it is FDR says, "I need Marshall here in Washington." Um, Marshall had this Bengali-like effect on Congress. 
If Marshall went before Congress and asked for something, he got it. Oh. The, the, the people, I think it was because his cultivate it was his cultivated uh, imitation of, uh, of 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 George Washington. People thought he was Washington back to earth again. So so he got what he wanted, and FDR respected that. Uh, so as a result, uh, uh, Marshall didn't get his fondest wish of being the the Pershing of World War II. And and the way Roosevelt broke it to Marshall is is classic uh, Roosevelt. He 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 told Marshall. I couldn't sleep at night not knowing you were here. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, when the president puts it that way, it's hard to be churlish about uh, <laughs> your disappointment. That's great. So we have we have about two minutes left. What what have we missed? Have we missed anything? There's, there's a, we could talk for hours and hours. I'm sure about this, but. We did get a question about book suggestions. Oh, yeah, that's right. So, uh, you know, this is a question I knew would come up. <laughs> to be honest, perfectly honest, I kind of dread it because there's just so much on, on Pearl Harbor. It's, it's hard to say what is the definitive uh, book. I mean, Gordon Prangy's book, At Dawn We Slept, is, is, is still um, a solid book, but it's 40 years old. Uh, and, and there's just been a lot of documentation. A, a more recent book, though I have to admit I haven't read it, uh, is by Steve Twomey, T-W-O-M-E-Y. It's, I think it's 12 Days to Pearl Harbor. Yeah, Countdown to Pearl Harbor. Countdown to Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Now, he's, he's a journalist, not a historian, so it's, it's very much about the, the exciting narrative that he can put together, and apparently there's only six pages on the attack of, uh, on Pearl Harbor itself, so that may not be the book if you want the, uh, the details. Uh, right. I, I actually think that, that finding oral histories about people who were at Pearl Harbor is, is just as valuable as any single book. Yeah, that's great. And there's still plenty of, uh, of conspiracy theory out there being, being published all the time. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I don't know that we know that much more about the attack now than we did when Gordon Prang was writing. Um, so I, I actually wouldn't hesitate reading that. Yeah, I hesitate recommending reading that. Not not to embarrass you both, but you've both written on on this time, this general time. So uh, strongly recommend that you look up their their books and um, you know, on these topics, they're they're fantastic. And D David, your novel takes place in World War II, doesn't it? Uh yeah, it's set it's set at the end of World War II and involves uh, Soviet espionage. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but but definitely get John's book on the Great Depression and uh, on uh, World War Two. Uh, what's Absolutely. what's the title, John? It's a great introduction. Uh, it's just called the Global Great Depression and the Coming of World War Two. Fantastic. Uh, but uh, yeah, it doesn't. I mean, it, I don't even. Do, I, I mentioned the attack on Pearl Harbor, but I do spend a lot of time talking about Japanese uh, foreign policy and the Japanese ec economic history in the period. Uh, yeah, read read Dave's uh, The Dead Don't Bleed. Uh, it's it's a fantastic read, and if you're a history geek, you'll you'll love all the uh, all the references. Uh, and what the sequel's coming out, right? Sequel comes out July third. Fantastic. Uh, and at the risk of self promotion, there's conspiracy in the novel. Um, all right. It's, it's made up, everybody. It's all make believe. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's wonderful. Yeah, read read both of their works. They're, these are great writers and great thinkers. And. And I really do appreciate your time this morning, gentlemen. It was very, very thoughtful, and, and uh, as always, when we get you guys together, and I learned a, a bunch. Uh, so thanks again. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Chris, and thanks, thanks. Todd, and thanks, everybody. This time yeah. has flown by. It's been a lot of fun. It yeah, it has been. Yeah. So, again, thanks to uh, everybody who joined us as well and submitted some great questions, led to a great conversation. Um, just a reminder really quick about the email that you'll receive with the link for your certificate of participation. 
Uh, if you like these kinds of conversations, I mentioned this earlier, uh, David and John both uh, teach in our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. And um, we have these kinds of conversations in our classes as well. So if you're interested in that, take a look at our, our MAG program, as it's called. Our next Saturday webinar will be February 3rd, and it will be on the Cuban Missile Crisis. And we are going to be graced with John Moser's presence once again, uh, which I'm looking forward to. And we'll also be joined by Will Addo. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs at TAH.org webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.